Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. Hello, 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 hello out there. I am very pleased to be with you this morning. My guest today is Christopher Sutherland. He is a nine-time author and he is a 12th generation Mayflower descendant. He is the creator of In My Footsteps, a Cape Cod and New England podcast. He's going to unleash episode 131, I believe, next week. So uh, Christopher is an author of the true crime novel, Searching for the Lady of the Dunes, and was featured on WCVB's Chronicle. So welcome, Christopher Sutherland. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Pandora, for having me. This is so much fun. I can't wait to just chat about whatever you want to chat about. Yeah. So um, before we get into some Cape Cod history uh, and your favorite sites on the Cape, and we're going to talk a little bit about ghosts, uh, I would love for you to talk first about this 1974 Provincetown murder mystery and your participation in the Victor Franco documentary. Oh, boy. So talk about living my life being like a movie for the better part of two years. The Searching for the Lady of the Dunes book that I released early last year, it's my proudest accomplishment as an author, but it's also something where the story of just creating it, it's things that I never thought that I would experience, I experienced. And growing up on Cape Cod, growing up with the Lady of the Dunes murder mystery, if you had told teenage me that I would have even a small, small hand in helping getting this case solved, I just said, no way. So it's a very, very broad subject. The The case itself is fascinating. It looked for a lot of time that there would never be a solution, that it would just fade away and that the Lady of the Dunes would forever be a Jane Doe with a stone at St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown. And that just, it was what it was. And here we are now where... We know her, Ruth Marie Terry, her husband, well, second, third husband, Guy Moldovan, was named as her killer. I believe there was more than just him, but there's resolution for her, for her family. Yeah, what a story. I mean, people have been thinking about this for for uh, what what is that? 50 years. <laughs> um, and it, it it left everyone feeling really unsettled. And I think a lot of people are relieved to know <laughs> the details and and just the resolution that it gives everyone and that that sense of completion for her her descendants and and those who you know care about her. So, um, can you talk about how you came to work on the documentary with Victor Franco and um, and also you know how you yeah how you came to to delve into this story? Oh, absolutely. This. This is one of those things that I could write a book about this whole thing. So Victor Franco is the pseudonym for Frank Durant, who was the producer of the documentary. 
he, as he was doing this project, I don't know how long into it, but people started saying, you've got enough here for a book. And he Googled Cape Cod author and found me. And he basically cold called me. Well, Facebook messaged me out of nowhere. Just a message from someone I've never heard of saying, would you like to talk about the Lady of the Dunes? I was kind of like, A, who is this person? And B, I said, I don't really have that much knowledge besides what's already out there. So we chatted his enthusiasm for the project, him wanting to, his whole thing was giving her her name back. He didn't have delusions of grandeur. He didn't want to make money and he hasn't made money on the documentary. That was a big part of it. He didn't want to exploit or sensationalize. We met up and our meeting was again, something out of a movie where we were supposed to meet in a parking lot. This was during the peak of COVID. I said, let's meet at a Dunkin' Donuts. He said, that's great. Dunkin' Donuts wouldn't let people inside. So when he was on his way, I texted him and said, hey, Dunkin' Donuts won't let people inside. Let's meet at this parking lot next to it on a cold and wet and foggy day. And he pulls up and there's me, the only person there with a black hoodie on. He said, boy, this sounds like an ambush. But after talking with him for only a few minutes, his enthusiasm rubbed off on me. And his big thing was, I need to make sure you're all in. I can't have... 12 months down the road, you come to me and say, I don't want to do this anymore. So I was all in from the jump and it was 18 months from the time that I met him to the time that I felt confident in the book being done. And there's so much in between, but you know, I'm trying to give the Cliff's notes version of it. Yeah. So can you talk about, um, about the difference between the documentary and your uh, your book and just um, how sort of uh, how it helped, uh, you know, to solve the, the story ultimately. Oh, absolutely. So I would say the documentary is kind of the proverbial tip of the iceberg and the book is the iceberg itself. And the reason I say that is because Frank and his crew, they filmed 50-something hours of footage in Provincetown, interviews and such, and they whittled that down to a 90-minute documentary. The documentary itself was done well before any resolution came for the case. Luckily for me, writing the book is a lot different. It's 93,000 words, so I was still working on it when things started to break. Now... Frank's involvement, it was kind of, I don't want to say kicking the hornet's nest because he wasn't looking to make trouble, but he he didn't have much knowledge of the case. So he came into it with fresh eyes. So he's asking questions that some people didn't want asked. He was asking, the first question was, why hasn't this been solved? Why hasn't she been named? And some people bristled at that. But there were things that he couldn't put in the documentary, things that didn't fit the the time frame, like getting high level law enforcement to actually speak on the record, but under the conditions of anonymity. And that's all in the book. They were literally there people that said, 
you can't name us because we could get in trouble for this. So in the book, there's Agent X, Agent Y, and Agent Z. It's like a James Bond movie. And they all gave him various tips, places to look, people to talk to. So on Halloween day of 2022, when Ruth Marie Terry was unveiled as the Lady of the Dunes, the the um, law enforcement officer that was known as Agent Z reached out to Frank and congratulated him and said, your work you did on this documentary helped to light a fire under the current law enforcement to get this solved. And he and I joked that they'll never, ever say anything like, well, this small time filmmaker and this local author, what they did helped to, you know, spur us on, but we know, and the people that help know, and I don't mind mentioning it, that it's mainly Frank, but I had a little, little bit to do with it. Very cool. Very cool. So I would love for you to talk about the angel of death. I, I think even fewer people know this story. The, the oh. Cape Cod angel of death. So this one I've wanted to, this would be something that if I did another book, Cape Cod true crime, it would probably be to do with nurse Jolly Jane Toppin. So her story, boy, there's a lot to it. She was adopted when she was young and the family that adopted her, the Toppin family, rather than loving her and treating her like a member of the family, essentially made her an indentured servant. This was in the 1870s. So she lived off Cape first. She, so an indentured servant treated terribly she had an engagement that broke off where essentially her fiance said, I'm going to go to a few towns over and get a job to earn money so we can get married. And he just never came back. So she was devastated by that. All these things changed her personality. And it's interesting because she went into nursing, never got her official degree, but that didn't stop her from saying she was a nurse. I believe she worked at Cambridge Hospital to start. And that's where the, the angel of death comes in. What she would do, and this was found out oh, probably 1902, I believe, was when she finally was caught. But what she was doing was slowly dosing patients with morphine so they would die, but it wouldn't look suspicious. And those that she wanted to keep as patients, she would give a less less lethal dose and just keep them sick. Now, when she was finally caught, it was the Davis family who lived in the village of Katomit in Bourne on the Cape. But Jane Toppin, she has connections to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, the Marine Biological Laboratory, where she got in there and she poisoned the head matron to basically take her job. She, it's an interesting dichotomy because you hear this after the fact that she said, oh, I probably murdered upwards of a hundred people. And you start to think, well, why did it take so long for her to get caught? And the she was basically very trustworthy on the outside to the point that the Davis family 
she ended up murdering all four, uh, mother, father, and two daughters. It started with the father. And then they, when the mother got sick, I'm not sure if this had to do with Jolly Jane, but they wanted her to come back and help. So they were basically inviting this murderer into their house because they trusted her. So, um, so in your exploration of different sites over the years, have you encountered some paranormal activity? Apparitions? I have a really good story that revolves around another Cape Cod true crime case, that being Tony Costa. Anyone out there who's listening, watching, if you're not sure who Tony Costa is, Google his name and it will change your opinion on the hippie movement of the 60s and free love and all that, how this was happening as well. A lot of what Tony Costa did took place in the area behind the Pine Grove Cemetery in Truro. The Pine Grove Cemetery today is middle of nowhere. It's a half mile drive down a dirt road to get to a cemetery that's surrounded by forest. Even today, you go in there and scream and no one will hear you. So when I first learned about this story, the Tony Costa murders, and the rumors that there's a, a brick crypt in the back left corner of this cemetery, there were rumors that he had done things to bodies in there. Though Those rumors are kind of unfounded the older I get and realize that. But there were stories that behind the cemetery and there are these fire roads in Truro that are way more haunting now that I know things. But there was a rumor that there was a phone, quote unquote, and it said Tony Chop Chop's phone. That was his nickname, Tony Chop Chop. There's a, and the first time I went there by myself, I, it was a misty kind of foggy day, very similar to today. I parked in the back of the cemetery and I said, I'm going to walk this fire road and look for this phone that's supposed to be nailed to a tree. And it was mid spring. So I had to wear a windbreaker because there were mosquitoes, there were flies. So I'm covering my head and I'm walking back this fire road. There's nobody anywhere. All I can hear is the kind of uh, rubbing of the vinyl of my hood against my ears. And I'm like, that's fine. I get a few hundred yards back and I kid you not, it sounded like someone doing that whistling with the fingers right next to my ear, like trying to get my attention. And it snapped me up. I looked, there's no birds, there's no nothing. It's silent. So I'm in the middle of nowhere. There's this horrific high pitched whistle right next to my ear. And once I heard that, I said, I'm out. I walked back to my car and I left. Um, that's spooky. That's definitely creepy. Uh, have you heard any good ghost stories? So when, during the Lady of the Dunes documentary and the book and all that production, I was at St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown a lot. <laughs> more than I probably should be. But we went up there a couple of times with psychic mediums, very reputable ones that are really good at their jobs. 
And one of them went to the grave, the Lady of the Dunes grave, speaking with her. And she was giving these accounts of what she does. Because in that cemetery is also Tony Costa is buried there in an unmarked grave next to his mother. One of his victims is buried about a hundred steps from where he is, which is really weird. And there's a connection. Uh, Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry, probably 50 feet down is Susan Perry was one of Tony Costa's victims. And Lady of the Dunes, she loves to talk. We went down because Susan Perry, her grave, when we found it, it was overgrown. Like we had to dig away dirt, which it was so sad. So this medium, we went down to her grave and be like, let's talk to her. And I have video of this. He's talking and she from the afterlife is way more reserved. She doesn't really want to talk much. And I'm, I'm just filming. And the medium, he stops and he looks and he says, did you hear that? And I was, I don't know. He said, it's like a buzzing wind. And what he said was this buzzing wind, because she is too shy to speak. It's the other spirits in the cemetery coming basically to be her support system. And I've gone back and I've watched the video. I can't really hear it, but it freaked me out when I was there because all of a sudden he stops and looks and he just says, did you hear that? And these are things that maybe part of me doesn't want to hear it. So I've listened to the video a little, but it's one of those things that cemeteries in general are definitely, especially old, old ones. They're worth visiting if you like a good ghost story. Yeah, I mean, um, I think a lot of the the ghost hunter stuff is 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 uh, sensational and faked, and you know that we see on TV. Uh, but I've, I've recorded, you know, spirits and a lot of people have, you know, and, and I've been in many situations with many people where we're all experiencing something at the same time. That's pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> uh, you know, I think anybody who's encountered, you know, ghosts who throw things, it's, it's oh. pretty it's it, or throw things in slow motion or break things in slow motion where it's like reality bends. You know, I I've even, there was a, a haunted Victorian house in San Francisco and it was just like the haunting, which is like a, a Russ Hamlin was in it. It's mm -hmm. an old film. So, but it actually happened. And my husband and I saw it at the same time. It's like the, the door was opening along the seam because it was two pieces of wood, you know, that went up really high in one of those Victorian houses all ornate and like, you know, and the, the, at the very top, it was like breathing, like it was like a big fist, the energy just pound, you know, and, and somebody had just died. Um, yeah. I, when I was <laughs> younger, very young, I had more of the entombment with that. My grandfather who passed away 12 years before I was born used to come and visit me because I was the first grandchild and being two years old and telling people that grandpa Johnny was coming to see me. It was one of those where, how did I even know his name unless he came and I would tell my mother things. My 
my Nana brought a psychic into her house and the psychic looked at me two years old with white blonde hair and said, has he been saying things? Because you should listen to him because he's got that gift. Now, I don't anymore. And I joke, I blame my mother because she yelled at my grandfather because the the final straw was that he had uh, reached into the crib to try to pick me up. And he was saying, it's okay. It's all right. And it freaked me out at two years old to see this apparition reaching in. And so my mother came in because I had basically dived out of the crib to try to get away. And my mother was yelling at him, you th- say you love your grandson and this is what you're doing. Scaring <laughs> like this. And now I joke with her. I said, well, there went my visions and my power. And she says, well, you could get it back if you meditate. I'm like, no, you ruined it by yelling at Grandpa Johnny. <laughs> that's a good story. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's that that's pretty. Uh, there, there's a there's a lot of people who have stories about, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, before kids know that they're not supposed to be in contact with <laughs> with people on the other side they experience they experience especially grandparents because there's so much love and care from the grandparents that are on the other side that you know they they want to stick around and they want to be there to guide oh, yeah. them my yeah. oldest niece who was the first great grandchild also got visited by my so it would have been her great grandpa Johnny so he basically came back around to see her so he's he's still there nice very cool so um i'd love for you to talk about cake pods atlantis oh boy so this story uh, about billingsgate island is the story that got all my interest in cape cod history started from this so the cliff's notes version is off of jeremy point in Cape Cod, uh, about two miles offshore from Sunken Meadow Beach, there used to be an island, Billingsgate Island. At its peak, it was probably 60 acres. So good size. It had houses. It had a school. It had a post office. It even had a baseball team that would row over to mainland Cape Cod and play. But the thing is, erosion, shoreline change, that's not a new thing. And over time, over decades, the beach, the island, it was eroded away. And it shrunk slowly but surely. And people started taking their houses and floating them across to East Ham to Wellfleet. There was a lighthouse there that they eventually just let it fall over. And in the, the turn of the 20th century, there were no homes there, but a man had bought what was left of the island. He put a camp up there for bird hunting, for shell fishing. But over time, again, Mother Nature's undefeated. She, the island was washed over in the early 1940s, and now it's Billingsgate Shoal. So it's still there at low tide. You can pull your boat up and picnic there. One of my last things I need to do on Cape Cod to fill out my bingo card of seeing everything is getting a brick from the lighthouse foundation of Billingsgate lighthouse. But the idea of looking at a map of Cape Cod, there's a really nice uh, Atlas. I think it's from 1880. And I saw it at Cape Cod community college in the uh, Nickerson room. 
in the Wilkins Library. And I'm looking at this um, image, the Atlas of Cape Cod, and I'm like, what is that little thingy off of the, the point at Great, Great Island and Wellfleet? Like Billingsgate Island? I've never heard of that. And that ended up being um, one of my main uh, papers I wrote for college was the shoreline change and how Billingsgate Island, if that can erode away, then other islands, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, Cape Cod itself, it's on borrowed time, you know, centuries and such. So it's not like tomorrow, but still there was this island and now it's not there. And speaking of islands, you've written guidebooks on uh, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. Can you talk about uh, a couple of your favorite uh, historical sites on uh, on those islands? I love so I'm a huge fan of lighthouses. That's I've got so many pictures of them. So I would say if I had to Nantucket, Brant Point Lighthouse is right there when you bring the ferry in. But if you really want to go out there, Great Point, it's a long drive. It's the tip of Nantucket. So it's probably four to five miles driving over soft sand. And interestingly, I went out when I did these books, I had a friend, a contact with the New England Office of Travel and Tourism. And he basically helped me get into places I wouldn't have normally gotten into. So my buddy Steve and I took his Jeep out to Great Point. Great Point Lighthouse is middle of nowhere, but it's fascinating because there was a storm in 1984, the same one that washed the Eldia up on shore at Nosset Beach. It knocked down Great Point Lighthouse. So going out there, standing there where you're in the middle of nowhere, but not, I love that. And then on the vineyard, I mean, having gone to the vineyard and knowing the movie Jaws, that really was the big thing for me, was seeing Gayhead Lighthouse, which is in the movie, seeing the Chappaquiddick uh, Beach Club where the uh, tents are in Jaws, seeing the bridge where people jumped off where the shark went into the pond. I, I'm a sucker for that because there aren't many filming locations that are accessible to me i would have to drive far far away so being able to see the places from jaws menemsha where quint's boat was oh i love that stuff cool and speaking of that that feeling of being in the middle of nowhere but also being close in proximity you know relatively to to civilization i feel like um certain sites feel like a time capsule. There's just a sense uh, of history and you can just kind of, you know, feel the, this, there's like a, a hauntingness or even just a, like a melancholy or e- uh, even a happy nostalgia feeling about certain places. Like you can kind of feel the living history. Um, you know, it can be very palpable, you know, somehow, uh, you know, so. There are, <laughs> Places on Cape Cod that are relics. And so there used to be a railroad that went all the way out into Provincetown. And most of that has been torn up and replaced with the bike trails. But you can go out in Truro. There are 
still parts of there used to be a bridge that went over the Pamet River. And so it's fascinating for me to be able to stand where something else used to be in Hyannisport. There's the, there was an old railroad wharf. And if you go to, I think it's Keys Beach in Hyannis and you walk a little bit. So if you're facing the water a little bit to the left, the old, the end of the wharf is there little pylons and you stand there and look at them and think, cause there's postcards you think about 150 years ago, how different things were. Or then you go, there are secret cemeteries on Cape Cod. There's a smallpox cemetery in Provincetown that is a few hundred yards off of Route 6. And you go there and stand before these gravestones. Most of them are broken off. And you realize that these were people with lives and their stones are numbers. Now, now they know who they were with names. But that's very haunting and humbling. Very cool. Thank you so much, Christopher Setterland, for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Pandora, for having me. I had so much fun. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcast at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. theme music is provided by Mazin. You can find her website at mazinmusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N 